0: You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Wednesday to you. It's time for Herd Mentality, the episode each week where you control the discussion by sending in your questions, comments, concerns, takes, whatever you have regarding the Buffalo Bills or whatever you want to get into on the podcast and I respond to it and let's do just that. The first one today comes from Matthew. Matthew says, "Throughout this offseason, I've heard Buffalo Bills analysts and personalities like yourself touch upon the somewhat uncertainty of how the Bills, and particularly Josh Allen, will perform this season with fans in the stands. With that, I have an observation and a two-part question. My observation? I know we are a passionate fan base with an energy that the players respond to. That energy ebbs and flows from the highest highs to the lowest lows. I have felt the energy get sucked out of the stadium and the blink of an eye, never to recover. I'm hoping we can all channel our inner Joe Marino and keep a level head on game day's this season. So fair observation. I will say this. When the bills are on offense, be quiet. Just be quiet. When the bills have the football and all the advantages that existed with empty stadiums can exist. At least when the bills are at home, remember Peyton Manning, when he was in Denver and with the Colts, this guy was always shushing the crowd, you know, palms down, pushing down, right? Like be quiet. Let me do my work. Give Josh Allen that same opportunity. Be smart football fans. My question is, with the quiet stadiums last season, Josh Allen used hard counts on what felt like every single down. How did the Bills' offense fare last season comparatively to the rest of the league when it came to drawing offside penalties? So the Bills were the beneficiaries of eight defensive offside penalties last year. That was third best in the league. Kansas City was number one with 14. The Lions were second with nine And then the Bills, Bengals, and Vikings each had eight. So the Bills did pretty well when it comes to drawing defensive offside penalties last year. The second part of Matthew's question is, Do you think crowd noise this season will limit the team's ability to utilize the hard count and extend drives comparatively to last season? Well, I think at home it should be the same advantage, right? Like, continue to be quiet. Continue to give the Bills the same advantages, and it should be relatively the same. It's going to be harder on the road. So I do think it will decline because, you know, half the time the Bills won't have those advantages, but it should make playing at home even more advantageous. The Bills have nine home games this year, and we should be doing everything we can as a fan base to present the right environment offensively and defensively for the team when they're playing at Highmark Stadium. Now, one other thing that I want to say about this Josh Allen performing with fans in the stands again and all that, Buffalo Rumblings did a really good article about the psychology behind this. And, you know, it's not so much the football side of things as it is, you know, human behavior. And I thought it was really well done. I encourage you to check out that article on buffalorumblings.com. The next one today comes from Patrick who says, I have a question for this week. Sean McDermott is notoriously bad at making coaching challenges. I know he doesn't make those decisions in a vacuum. Can you address how the Bills process those decisions and any steps they've made to do better? So let's first mention Sean McDermott's record with challenging plays. And if you notice, every time I do a game preview, part of what I mention is the opposing team's head coach, and what their challenge record is, so I can provide you know more data to you guys about how coaches fare across the league when it comes to challenging plays. But the league average is around 51% when it comes to reversals. When it comes to coaches winning challenges, the league average is around 50, 51%. McDermott, for his career, is 5 for 20. That's 25%, so yes, he's very much below average. In 2017, he was 1 for 4. In 2018, he was 0 for 6. So the guy started out 1 for 10. Now, in 2019 and 2020, he got a little better. In both seasons, he was 2 for 5, and that's a percentage of 40%. So McDermott's getting better at this, still below average. Now, as far as the process, I don't know the answer, and I don't think Sean McDermott's going to tell you the answer. I do know that he has a game day assistant. He has somebody that helps with, making those decisions and uh, is responsible for watching these replays and telling Coach McDermott when to make those challenges. So I know that is something that changed fairly recently. I'm not sure if that was going into 2019 or going into 2020, but Sean McDermott has an assistant that literally is a game day management coach that helps him with these types of things. So I think we've seen this get better, right? I don't think it's where it needs to be. I think it's an operation of the football team. It still has room for improvement, but the guy went one for 10 his first two years, and he's four for 10 his next two years, so hopefully he can get to that league average, and this won't be something that we talk about very much moving forward when it comes to Sean McDermott and his challenge record. The next one today comes from Matt. Matt says, I know it's hard to tell without seeing it, but do you feel like Josh Allen is scheme diverse, and do you think we should be targeting and Earhart Perkins Scheme Offensive Coordinator. So do I think Josh Allen is scheme diverse? Yes. I've said before on the podcast that I think Josh Allen plays above X's and O's. And so he's not a system quarterback. He's not a guy that can only thrive under one scheme or one philosophy. However, I would say that there are schemes that are going to fit him better than others. I don't want to put Josh Allen in a West Coast offense. I mean, that would be completely unnecessary. Putting Josh Allen in a rhythm passing offense, get the ball out of your hands quick? No. That's what they did with Tyrod Taylor, though. That's what Rick Dennison's offense was back in 2017. Sean McDermott hired Rick Dennison. Tyrod Taylor was the quarterback, and they're trying to put this guy who. It has the ability to extend plays and use his legs and throw the football down the field a little bit. And they put him in a West Coast timing offense. So (laughs) that's not what I'm looking for with Josh Allen should the Bills ever lose Brian Dable. Um, You know, something Air Coriel spread. I want to see an offense that gets, you know, three, four receivers on the field a lot, that is RPO heavy, that is play action heavy, that gives Josh Allen a lot of freedom to extend plays and work outside of structure, those are the ingredients that are important to me when it comes to Josh Allen and the future schemes that he's going to run. You know, because inevitably I feel like Brian Dable is going to get that chance to be an offensive coordinator in the NFL. So would it be good to have an Earhart Perkins scheme coach step in and take over for Brian Dable? Maybe. You know, but I still think there's a lot within the Earhart Perkins conceptually that can vary from coach to coach. And like I said a few weeks ago when we talked about this, Sean McDermott is fully aware of the possibility that Brian Dable is going to be a head coach in the NFL. And that means a new offensive coordinator for Josh Allen. This isn't going to sneak up on them. I'm sure he's been working on candidates and thinking about this plan and probably has a great plan already in place. So they won't be blindsided. They're fully aware of it, and um, I'm sure that Josh Allen will have some say in this, and you know, making sure that it's a good marriage for Josh uh, matters a lot. So I think I think the Bills will handle this well, and it will come from Sean McDermott being prepared for it because it isn't something that's going to catch anyone off guard. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at BetOnline. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and the UFC. Before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in the game. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code LOCKEDON. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. The next one today comes from Christian. Christian says, in the months since the draft, we've learned a lot about the Bills' new rookie class, specifically regarding Spencer Brown." I can only recall hearing positive or glowing remarks about his potential to be a fixture offensive tackle once Darrell Williams' time with the team is done, or possibly sooner. If everything I'm hearing is so positive, why and how did a talent like this fall to the third round? Luck? Small school? Low reps? Or maybe I'm just missing the narrative of flaws with Spencer Brown. So I think you've identified some of the reasons why he was a third round pick. And that's still a fairly high pick. If a team picks a player in the first three rounds, I think that means they believe this can be a starter for them either right away or very soon. So I don't think being a third round pick is necessarily a low pick. But before I get into the specifics about Spencer Brown, let's just acknowledge that this is the honeymoon period for draft picks. General managers just went and stuck their neck out for these players, drafted them to their team. And so with that, the positivity is going to be at an all-time high. I mean, these guys are just going through workouts and practices where there's not full pads and there's no contact. And, you know, they're young spry athletes that look good in shorts and they move around well and they're eager to learn and they're on their best behavior because they're rookies. I mean, they just haven't had enough time to do anything wrong, right? I mean, they haven't played in a game. You haven't had a chance to watch them make a mistake. They're dialed in they're excited about their career. This is the time where everything should be glowing about rookies. So I think that's important for us to to be mindful of as we consider all the positivity that's coming from these draft picks and much of that has to do with it just being a product of this time of year and these circumstances. So why wasn't Spencer Brown a higher pick? Let me look at some of my notes regarding Spencer Brown. I said he's athletic, long, and coordinated. He has terrific foot speed to mirror pass rushers, good pop in his hands, excellent functional strength throughout his frame. He blocks with an edge. He's aggressive. He's a people mover. He has crazy good bend for his frame. And then some of my negatives. He's tall in his pass sets. He punches down. His pass sets still need development in terms of reaching landmarks and not chasing as frequently. He has the length and feet but has to mirror with better consistency. He's a bit of a leaner, and he's inexperienced, unchallenged, and raw. I mean, this guy only has three seasons ever with game experience on the offensive line. 33 starts at the FCS level. He played tight end in high school, in eight-man football. So he's got a ton of really exciting tools, but from a technique perspective and from a practical application time on task perspective, he's got a ways to go. And so that's how a guy with his RAS score and his measurables and his athleticism and his makeup can fall to the third round. And hopefully it's to the bills benefit, but he's definitely a bit projecty. And so I'm anxious to see him in a preseason and I'm hopeful that he can be an eventual starter for this team. And he's got all the tools to be able to do it. But like you mentioned Small school, low reps, lack of technique at this point. That's what pushed him down the board. So he's a developmental starter. He has a high ceiling, but I think there's patience required with this player. The next one today comes from Matt. And Matt just welcomed a baby girl into the world uh, back in May. And so Matt's question is, if you had to pick one Bills head coach, either past or present, that you believe best resembles your style of being a dad, who would it be? Matt, I'm not going to lie. I sweated over this, this reply. I, I When I read this question, I loved the question, and then when I dug through the options, I didn't feel super good about any of them. So I have all of the coaches that I think I can speak to, and um, I'm going to tell you why I don't think it's that coach that resembles my style and why I ultimately settled on who I did. So starting with Marv Levy, this can't be my answer. Um, Marv is just super smart and he uses big words and he has this style about him that is not that is just not like me. So I couldn't pick Marv Levy. Then it was Wade Phillips. And Wade Phillips is somebody that I'd love to have a beer with. He'd be somebody that would be a dream guest for the podcast for me. Uh, you know he's got great stories, but I just don't think him and I are anything alike in terms of personality. Greg Williams, no chance. No way. No, no way. I mean, Greg Williams is the type of leader I don't aspire to be anything like. So he's a big no. Then it was Mike Malarkey. He's a quitter. That ain't me. Then it was Dick Duran. No, I mean, Dick Duron and I, just nothing in common. I mean, nothing at all. And We're talking about a guy who was trying to defend... His quarterback, I think it was Trent Edwards, and he was asked about, you know, why he was making the decisions that he was making and maybe not throwing the football with a quicker trigger. And Dick Duran said, you know, those those offensive linemen are so tall, you know, you you just wonder if the quarterback can see over these guys. I'm like, are you kidding me? No. So it's not Dick Duran at all. So then we get to Chan Gailey. And Chan Gailey's is going to be my choice, but let me skip over him to tell you why the next three are not me. Doug Marone, he's a quitter and come on, like he's a weird, really weird guy that just rubs people wrong and not for me. Rex Ryan, pff, I'm not even going into that. Sean McDermott, I would love to pick Sean McDermott. And I think him and I have a lot of similarities, but I think Sean McDermott is more rigid than I am. And so I don't I don't know if that's something that lines up. So the reason I picked Chan Gailey is because I think Chan Gailey's kind of a softie. And that's kind of me as a dad. I got a baby girl. She's beautiful. She's 17 months old. And she has me wrapped around her finger. And, you know, Chan Gailey, he talks a big game. You know, this is a tough game for tough people. Look, I, I say those types of things too, right? Like I have all my sayings and I try to be a tough guy. But when it comes to that little girl, I'm a softie. And so just like I think Chan Gailey probably had those tendencies where he wanted to be this tough guy, in his heart, he just wasn't, right? He wasn't that guy. So while I don't think Chan and I are a slam dunk pair, I think I can find the most similarities in Chan than any of the other coaches on the list. Next one today comes from Ted who says, I have a few questions about run pass options. I could be easily wrong, but it seemed like the Bills ran more RPOs in 2020 than they did in 2019. Is this correct? Uh, Yes, it is correct. The Bills ran 89 RPOs in 2020 and 54 in 2019. Ted continues, Is there any tracking data on RPO frequency or RPO success rate from the last two seasons? What impact do you think they had on Josh Allen's season and on the offense holistically? Also, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume that RPOs work better in zone blocking schemes than they do in power gap schemes. Do you think Dable's desire to add more RPOs into the 2020 offense was a significant driver in increased zone blocking run plays? Or are RPOs a side effect of the move towards zone blocking? Thanks, and I'll hang up and listen to your answer as I walk the dogs. So I don't have any data that can tell us Success rate of RPOs, and the Bills ran 89 of them last year, and what the success rate was of those plays, I don't have that data. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. I don't have it, and I don't know how to get it, but it would be interesting to know. I would guess they're probably very good plays in terms of success rate. So what is the impact on the offense and on Josh Allen? I love RPOs. I absolutely love them. It helps you dictate things to the defense. You make them wrong no matter what. You put a defender in conflict, you read off of them, and if you make the right decision, the defense is wrong. And it adds another layer to your offense. It's something that's difficult to prepare for. And so defenses are scrambling right now to figure out, all right, what do we do against RPOs? How do we defend them? Do we roll down a safety? Okay, roll, roll down your safety. And then there's going to be opportunities behind that safety, right? Like there's so much in play that helps you dictate things to the defense that I just love them being part of what you do. From a preparation standpoint, your opposition has to spend a lot of time figuring out your RPOs and how they're going to defend them. So I think they're a great layer. I think it helps Josh Allen. I think it helps the offense. Now you're part about zone blocking and gap blocking You know, when you tag an RPO, do you want zone or gap? There's both. I don't think there's anything that I can point to that says either is better. But I think the important thing is, is putting that defense in a situation where their keys are false. So if you want to get downhill with that run component of the RPO, right? It's a run pass option. You can hand it off or throw it. Whatever puts that defense more in conflict is the one that I like better. And I don't know that I draw a correlation to the Bills shifting more towards zone rushing concepts to there being an uptick in RPOs. Because I'm guessing when you break it down in terms of frequency, 89 RPOs in 2020, 54 in 2019, the Bills probably ran a lot more plays in 2020. So as a percentage of the plays that they ran, it may not be that more. So from a volume perspective, it is more, but from a percentage, it's probably not that much bigger. So I think it has more to do with the style of run game that the Bills want to employ more than it is the RPO being the catalyst for schematically there being a shift when it comes to the run game. So I hope I hope that answers the question well. I really appreciate the question. I like this a lot. I wish I had a little bit more data that I can share with you to provide more context on this one need to tell you guys about built bar. It's the best tasting protein bar on the planet. So many amazing flavors. They're all delicious. They're all covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to chew. It's like eating a candy bar, but they are good for you. Built bar is great for anyone who is health conscious, whether you want to lose weight, maintain weight, or just indulge in a delicious treat. You got to try built bars. They're low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber, and great for anyone who is on the keto diet. I've got a deal for you. Go to BillBarr.com and use promo code LOCKED15, and it'll get you 15% off your next order. Again, that's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BillBarr.com. The next one today comes from Martin who says, From what I had seen with the Bills' defensive scheme when they played Kansas City last year, both games seemed identical. The focus on taking the long ball away, allowing for short, easy passes over and over again. Do you expect to see drastic defensive scheme changes for our next meeting with the Chiefs this year? And if so, why do you think the appropriate changes were made during the AFC Championship game? I would say that there were a lot of differences in the way the Bills played Kansas City in week six compared to the AFC Championship game. The most notable being that in week six, they invited the Chiefs to run the football as much as they wanted to. They gave them light boxes and said, anytime Patrick Mahomes doesn't throw the football, it's a win, even if it means you gash us in the run game. And I'll be honest with you, the Bills lost that game, but they introduced enough variance to give them a chance. I mean, if that fumble comes out, it didn't in week six, but if it comes out, the Bills are in the driver's seat there to have a chance at the end. Now, the variable that they didn't account for against Kansas City in week six was that the offense wasn't going to play well that Josh Allen of the offense was going to have a down game I think that's the piece of the pie that was missing in the AFC championship game I think the bills played them a little bit more straight up you know how they typically play defense and that like when you say that the bill's defense their scheme and their game plan against Kansas City was to take away the stuff down the field and allow for short easy passes I mean in a lot of ways that is what the bills do defensively They make you beat them by stringing together play after play after play after play. And if you can string together 10, 15 plays in a row, you can score against the Bills. I mean, that's what they give you. The defense is designed to keep leverage over the top, not allow big plays, funnel things to certain areas of the field that forces you to make throws of high degree of difficulty or just take easy completions. And hey, if you can string together these plays... Good on you. You can be in contention for a field goal or a touchdown. Philosophically, I think that is a a lot of what they want to do defensively. Just look at the average depth of target against the Bills defense under Sean McDermott. It's always very, very, very low. I mean, teams don't attack the Bills down the field, and that's due to the way they leverage their coverage spacing. So I think the biggest changes that the Bills need to make to beat Kansas City are, are, are on offense. Defensively, they got to execute better. they got to tackle better. they got to stay more disciplined with their zones, those types of things. To me, it's to, and, and maybe that's a good thing, but I think it comes back to the Bills' offense more than anything if they're going to have a chance to knock off the Chiefs. Tyler says, How has the change in offenses in college with Air Raid going from a niche offense to almost everyone doing it affected the ability to evaluate both offensive and defensive players? It's a good question, Tyler. It's affected certain positions more than others, primarily the offensive line, where what these offensive linemen are asked to do in an air raid offense is so different than what the NFL is asking, right? Like true pass sets. A lot of times in an air raid offense at the college level, it's a quick set. Just take that that pass rusher where they want to go just a little bit more than they want to go there. And that's all you need. Where in the NFL, you got to take, you know, vertical pass sets and hit landmarks with your kick slide that are required for plays to work. I mean, it's a very different concept when it comes to pass blocking. Then there's the component of having to roll your hips into contact as a run blocker, where in college, you're really not asked to do that as an air raid offense, offensive lineman. So offensive line is is challenging. Running backs, wide receivers, tight ends are challenging because the route tree is very, very limited, usually. You don't get a chance to see tight ends in line nearly as much as you used to in the past and really get a feel for what they offer as a blocker and route runner from an in-line position. The pass protection for running backs is really different. Defensively, you're seeing a lot of drop eight, which means rush three, and those are hard pass rush reps to evaluate. So, yes, across the board, there are just a lot of challenges that come from the air raid being the toast of college football and extrapolating traits from players in those schemes and forecasting them to the NFL, where what they're going to be asked to do is different. It's very, very different. The next one today comes from David, who says, You see, teams with good records getting high first round picks. Of course, what happened is that they trade some players to poor teams who earn a high pick for them. How easy is this to arrange? Of course, you have to trade a quality player to get a first-round pick. Do you have to be tanking for a rebuild, or can a strong team spare such a player that weak teams covet? Can this be arranged, or do you have to fall into it? Is it worth it for the Bills to shop a good player in a position of depth? I think whenever this happens, it's luck. It's pure luck. Whenever the Miami Dolphins traded Laramie Tunsil to the Houston Texans, there's no way the Houston Texans thought they were giving them a top three draft pick in 2021. I mean, they were a team that had won a couple of division championships in a row, a budding star in Deshaun Watson. There's no way you thought that was going to be a top three pick. I think teams luck into this more than anything with situations like that. You make a trade to a team, their quarterback gets hurt for the whole year, All of a sudden, the dynamics of that team aren't there, and they already traded away their first-round pick. I think that's what it comes down to. It's more luck than anything. And usually, the player that is being traded away has some type of a rift with the organization. Do you see that with the Bills? I don't, right? Like, you see Stephon Gilmore is all pissy with the Patriots right now over his contract, and Xavier Howard with the Dolphins, Jamal Adams with the Jets, Minka Fitzpatrick with the Dolphins. Stephon Diggs wanted out of Minnesota. So I think part of the reason why you trade away a really good player for a first-round pick is because they don't want to play for that team anymore. Well, that ain't happening in Buffalo. You've got Isaiah McKenzie out here saying that he would take a salary and candy to play for the Bills. Levi Wallace didn't want to go play anywhere else. Matt Milano didn't want to go play anywhere else. Darrell Williams didn't test the free agent market. These guys don't want to leave Buffalo, so they're not going to force the issue. So I would be surprised if the Bills were on the side of a trade where they'd be sending away a a player for a first-round pick. That that would really, really surprise me. And so from a Bills perspective, I don't see how this happens. I think the way that the Bills can luck into a high first-round pick is trading out of the first round. So let's say they pick... 29th in the draft this year. Trade that pick out of the first round to a team that wants to come in and get a quarterback or something like that, and it costs them their first-round pick next year. I think that's what's going to have to happen for the Bills to luck into a high first-round pick. And no, I wouldn't be seeking it out. I wouldn't be thinking about trading Trey White or Teon Dawkins or you know Steph Diggs or any of those types of players to try to go – and luck into a high first round pick because you just be hoping that you can replace that player. I don't I don't see the value in that at all. And so um, I, I don't really see this as a as an opportunity that's going to be there for the Bills. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today here on the podcast. Tomorrow we tackle the tough questions when it comes to the Buffalo Bills offensive line. So don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, and share the podcast. And I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.